Hello and welcome to the Antiplex. This is episode 23, the Maverick Cast. Maverick Cast? Maverick Cast? With me today to help me deep dive into this film that is blowing away audiences and box offices alike is Mr. Arian Sohaley. Thanks for being here. You're a filmmaker, you're a musician. You're a all-around just badass guy. You're a sporty guy. <laughs> uh, my audience can't see you right now because this is a podcast, a visual medium, yeah. or it's an audio medium. <laughs> but you're wearing a, a fun, like Hawaiian-looking, like tank top. Yep. Yeah. You're very tan. You're ripped. <laughs> you got a sweet hat on. You got a nice beard. Thanks, you dude. look like you're ready to be a Top Gun pilot. I mean, shit. It's <laughs> <laughs> Um, it's so good to have you, man. This is my first show in a while. Yeah, so man. Sorry if I'm a little honored to be here, man. Seriously, yeah, it's so good to have you. Um, yeah, I'm excited. Uh, you you've become a, a buddy of mine. You've become a collaborator of mine. We're actually filming a, a we're filming a short film after, after this today. So we're, we're double, double header, dude. Yeah, double header. <laughs> so we do it all. Yeah, you know, you do it all. Um, we met through some mutual friends, Chase and Farah, mm-hmm. who have been on the show. Mm-hmm. Uh, Farah Makrani and Chase Offerly. They've both been on the show before, huge friends of mine, and um, also talented musicians, actors, yep. filmmakers. So I've been so honored to be kind of folded into this powerful group of people. Uh, you're now fiancé Megan. Yep. yep. Um, I'm actually using you to get to her. I, I want to get her on the show <laughs> next. So uh, anyway, we'll, we'll talk about that later, but... Yeah, uh, that's a whole other show, man. Yeah, yeah. You guys have become a power couple. Uh, you just got engaged. Yep, thank you. You just had a concert a couple weeks back. Yeah, that was uh, our first show. Super fun. Yeah. Um, we had you filming it all. Like, it was, was so fun, dude. Yeah, I love your, your Canon rig. Yeah. And you, they were like, hey, do you want to film? And I was like, I'm, I'm scared. I, 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 I went to film school, but I don't know what I'm doing. And you were like, you're fine, man. Relax. And uh, I loved the rig. It was so nice. Yeah. Um, C200, dude. C200, yeah. How long have you had that guy for? Uh, Got it in 2018. Nice. And it's basically the upgrade from the C100, and I was using that since probably 2014. So I've been on the Canon camera route for a long time now. Yeah. Um, Is that that your uh, your battle axe right now? Yeah, yeah, I sharpen the sword, you know. I I, uh, (laughs) keep it sharp. It was sharp. It was sharp when I used it. Yeah, I cut myself, actually, yeah. (laughs) <laughs> I had to go to the hospital. No, everything was, everything was great. Yeah, it's a perfect documentary camera. Um, the size, the the weight of it, it's it's not too big, um, but it has enough weight to it so that you could you know feel like it's a sturdy sturdy camera, and it's not big enough to um, intimidate other people. You know, if you walk into a room with a big shoulder rig or right. you know like a tripod and everything, it's like whoa, what's going on? But if you go in handheld with this camera, it's like just enough enough to let people know that you're serious. You're like, oh, this is this is kind of like a professional situation, but it's not intrusive. You know, mm. it's pretty. Uh, it's been pretty, pretty good the last couple years. Um, love it. Yeah, that's awesome. Yeah. I'm glad you said documentary. I don't, I don't even know where to begin with you, man. Your 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 credentials go on for for a hundred years here. Uh, let's <laughs> let's back it up a little bit. Where did you go to school? Where did you study? Uh, I studied mechanical engineering in um, 2000, early 2000s to graduated in like 2008. Mechanical engineering. Yeah. Why did I think you went to film school? Uh, I, I don't know. Why did I think? I don't. 
was like, oh, he went to film school somewhere. Um, <laughs> I went to film school and, uh, you know, wow, mechanical engineering. Yeah. So what was, what, what was your kind of original, like, what do I want to be when I grow up kind of vibe? Did you have that or did you just know you wanted to go into engineering um, somehow? Well, I was interested in technology and I was interested in the arts at the same time as a kid. Um, where did you, where perfect, are you from? Uh, San Diego. You're from San Diego. You're Cali. Yeah. You're a Cali boy. Cali all my life, you yeah. know, so sunshine. Yeah. From from childhood to adulthood. Uh, no wonder you're yeah, so tan. Yeah, it's kind of like... You've been working on this tan for, <laughs> for all your life because it's like the most beautiful Well, I live in have. Sunland, dude. It's yeah. too fucking hot. You got to like take your shirt off constantly just to walk around the yard, you know? Like and the volleyball scene. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, it's uh, it's default, gun. you know? It's, <laughs> I'm not even trying. Yeah, you're not even trying. So yeah, you yeah. have to take your shirt off. Yeah, you just it's, it's hot. It's too hot for a shirt. Shirts just get in the way. Man, Sunland is... Uh, it's been cool. I, I li- I've lived in L.A. for probably 13 years now, I think. Um, lived in Su- Sunland for the past year or so, and it's so it's so mellow. It's such a change from living downtown, Silver Lake, Echo Park. I've, I've moved around a lot during those 10 years, but, uh, yeah, it, it's a good change. Like, towards the end of the pandemic, uh, just kind of getting outside of the populated area a little bit. It's 1,500 feet elevation. It's like... Right outside the city in the mountains. Yeah, yeah, it's it's beautiful. I can't wait to come visit your your new yeah, uh, dude. your compound. Yeah, we got guitar amps, we got a drum oh set, goodness. we got a microphone. So karaoke madness, you know. I might just, like, I might just come <laughs> and bring my tent and uh, just stay for a couple <laughs> weeks and just really. Yeah, we got a fire pit in the back, dude. Oh you know, man, we yeah. totally. Do some marshmallows. You'll be getting the your fire. coffee in the morning. You'll see me in the backyard. Yeah, you know, like <laughs> building a fire or something. And, yeah. Uh, Playing with all your toys. Yeah, <laughs> I'm your I'm your mic tester, your amp tester, your lens tester. You got a lot of toys, man. Got a lot, a lot of, of lights. Yeah. Got a lot of grip gear. You know, um, I'm just kind of a well-rounded. Uh, You're a gearhead. Gearhead. I'm a gearhead. You're a gearhead. Yeah. Yeah. So so mechanical engineering. Was there one toy that uh, was your inspiration? Was you, you know did did your parents give you like a something to to play with like and you were like oh my god I like I like gear I like stuff you know yeah for knots. sure for sure <laughs> yeah you're tying knots at three years old or you know <laughs> well my dad is a mechanical engineer okay there you go In the and yeah his two brothers are mechanical engineers as well oh wow so um, tradition yeah and one of them actually um, I think he practiced for at least a decade and then he went and switched over to photography and um, my other uncle. He switched over to computer science. My brother, he's a mechanical engineer as well. So there, there's five of us that are all mechanical engineers. Wow. It's ridiculous. You guys call each other when you get stumped on something? Like, <laughs> hey, man, I need to, like, can't get this widget to... Uh, yeah, it's, it's, it's pretty fun. So, I mean, growing up in that environment, it, it was... Uh, it was, um, like I was saying earlier, it was like... It, it's For me, it's a connection with the creative side because it's problem solving mm-hmm. and it's design. So, uh, you know, as technology was just progressing and progressing at such a high rate, like through the 80s and 90s, um, it's like every year there was some kind of breakthrough with something, right? Right. Um, So as a kid, I mean, any kid, it's like you're around all this progression. Um, I just had a natural interest in in the technology itself, but um, it also leaned into cameras. And uh, just fooling around with with film cameras, thirty five millimeter cameras. Uh, mm. My dad had a Canon uh, from the eighties, 
and that was just our our household camera that you know we screwed around with. Yeah. And, and, started making little movies and stuff. Uh, I was, you know, I screwed around with like camcorders and stuff, right. and and to me, like the the concept of making these like little skits and stuff with just like a home video camera, it was just like that was the first thing I tried to do, you know. When as soon as I got my hands on one, you right. know. But shortly after high school, when uh, when I started going to college for engineering, um, I was still just like I was really into music. And a lot of my friends that were into music were, you know, we're all kind of artistic and stuff. So while I was getting into this tech world, I was also, I just like wasn't letting go of any of the creative stuff. And Yeah, um, I was splitting the diff there. Yeah, so I, I always kept my connection, like it was never broken. Um, mm -hmm. So a couple years later, uh, it's probably like in my early 20s, uh, I got my own camcorder and like we started filming the zombie movie Ooh. and uh it's called dead awakening uh one, my, one of my buddies uh sean strout um he was doing all the effects and we we're both everybody was like starring in it too it was basically right. uh but this this film just it kept growing it kept getting longer and longer and long and we kept adding more scenes and we're like well we need another scene and and, and like we need more people and then it just became almost like a feature-length film. It was like a 40-minute movie. Wow. Uh, and it was just old-school effects that we basically learned from uh, watching behind the scenes of uh, Night of the Living Dead, the original. I was just going to say, it sounds like a, you know? like a George Romero yeah. scenario here. Yeah, I, it was all like uh, blood f was used from uh, Hershey's Chocolate Syrup. That was oh, like... Yeah. Because you're like shooting in black and white. Right? Yeah. yeah, you're shooting in Psycho. black and white. You're like, well, this is so much easier, you know? Like, yeah. for, forget, like, getting too deep into special effects with budget. It's like, if you shoot in black and white, um, right. you could get away with so much more. And we ended up making a shorter cut of it that was about 15 minutes. And we entered uh, our school film contest. And we ended up winning Best Drama for that wow and then we got entered into uh, another competition from there to show the movie at the uh, what was it the the egyptian theater in hollywood oh my god the egyptian i was blown away i was like uh i was still going to school and then we were in this competition with all these other actually f other film schools um and it was 16 schools uh we made the cut and they premiered it on the big screen, and and that was like How the exciting. moment where I was like, dude, maybe I should yeah, this is try to I do this, do. you know? Like this is yeah. so cool. I mean, so this being, was college. Uh, yeah, this was in college. So you were in college for mechanical engineering. Yeah. And then you decided just to make a movie for fun. Yep. With your friends. Mm-hmm. Called Dead Awakening. Yeah. Zombie piece. Yeah, at the Egyptian, and we're like, which is a massive movie palace, yeah, exactly. right next to the uh, Grandma's Chinese. Yeah. So you're right in the middle of like. Classic Hollywood. Yeah, it was totally magical. I mean, I had not, I don't think I even had really been in Hollywood until that moment. I mean, maybe we visited, like, I think we went to the Burgundy Room or something, like, one of the first nights in Hollywood ever, uh, just with some friends, like, kind of scoping the place out. And by the way, being from San Diego, there's, there's this weird kind of like rivalry with San Diego and LA. Oh, yeah. So, there's some kind of attitude where like oh, we're cooler than LA or something. And it's like <laughs> right. well they're just two different cities. I mean so yeah. 
you know, getting there and, and kind of scoping L.A. out. And I'm like, whoa, this is pretty interesting, actually. And then seeing all the... Seeing how the enemy enemy lives. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> exists. Doing my reconnaissance research. <laughs> I was living in... Uh, was, so I went to school in Pomona, Cal Poly Pomona. Okay. And it was, you know, it's only like an hour drive to the city um, to get to Hollywood. So I was just hanging out with some friends, probably like 21 or something like that. Yeah. And they're like, let's go to Hollywood. I was like, cool, never been there. Let's do it. Yeah, and I was like, whoa, this is actually cool. <laughs> yeah, wow, that's incredible. So, Dead Awakening opens. Um, huge praise from critics and fans alike. <laughs> and did you did you immediately just be like, I want to be a filmmaker? And did, did you finish the mechanical engineering degree? I mean, that's... I did. That uh, yeah, I mean, it was a very intense kind of experience um, mm-hmm. in engineering. I, I just... I had a really good group of friends, and we were all just in a very challenging environment. Um, I mean, the average grades were like C's, you know. Oh, wow. A lot of people, um, I mean, yeah, most everybody struggled through it. It was just so so difficult to get through the courses. You need a team, like you need, and and, right. and the intensity of it was uh, held together by your your group that would get together and study and help each other out because there was no way I could get through that program by myself. Mm. None of us, I mean, it, it was like, it was all based on helping each other out. Yeah, um, it's like in Top Gun, we're yeah. on the same side. Yeah. Yeah, like what kind of, uh, I guess like occupationally, like what's like what kind of stuff would that path take you vocation-wise? Um, Where would you end up? I got into product design. Product design? Yeah, I got lucky and got this job right out of college in Hollywood, actually. Oh, wow. Which was kind of like destiny, too. I was like, see, huh. I was supposed to be here somehow. Like, <laughs> So you weren't trying to come to Hollywood right away. You just ended I was up- on Craigslist looking for jobs, and yeah, yeah. I was like, headphone company, Hollywood. I was like, oh, wow. really? Are you serious? Like, I mean, that sounds like a cool job. I nice. interviewed for it, and it was a small company that was up and coming. It's called V-Moda. They're still around. Ended up having a cool mentor there who was uh, an industrial designer, Mike Martin. Um, learned a lot from him, learned a lot from some other engineers, and I got to work with engineers in China who were manufacturing the products. So it, it was it was definitely cool to see wow. how products are made from start to finish, you know, all the way yeah. from concepts to the assembly line. Execution, yeah. You know, I literally like pulling it off the assembly line and like, whoa, that, that was a long process of yeah. a lot of different people working on it. Oh, you know? that's cool. Um, so I did, yeah, product design for about five years, and then I made a transition in, into working in film, video, and I was kind of doing that on the side the whole time anyway, you know, just for yeah. fun. That's how I made the transition. You it made was a just sequel like, to Dead Reckoning? Uh, <laughs> one, one, two, three, four? Yeah. In your spare time at night? Man, that was a fun, fun time. Yeah, I, I got We used a lot thing. of engineering tricks in that, actually, yeah. Uh, You're we, right, there's so much engineering and filmmaking. Yeah. There really is. Uh, it sounds like you really uh, gave you a really good uh, real life application. It know? did. It, it was totally useful. Like for wow. example, one of the best parts of that whole zombie film, which made it seem like we were so skilled in special effects, was what we called the blood cannon. It was basically a PVC pipe, probably four inch diameter. We cut that thing, cap it, and put a valve that would sit in a in a car tire, basically, right? And you'd pump it to. 30 psi or something like that you get this pressurized air 
And then we had a valve that went into a hose and we'd fill that whole hose up with Hershey's chocolate syrup. And then when we were ready to blast an explosion of blood, which was pretty much almost every scene, we figured out how to like, all right, here, here's the blood cannon. Yeah, Boom! Yeah, this is our moneymaker. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Man, okay, so wow. For some reason, I just thought, I just assumed you went to film school. Here I am wasting my time going to film school for film. I should have went to engineering and actually learned a thing or two. You know, I I've thought about that, and I have a different perspective over that now, like years later. Because um, I remember hearing Quentin Tarantino say something like, "You don't need to go to film school." Mm-hmm. And I heard that when I was going to college for engineering, and I was like, "Well." If I do want to get into film one day, and if that actually can happen, uh, it's okay because you don't have to go to film school. Tarantino said so. Yeah. Um, but I think it's still cool, you know, because yeah. I see I see guys come out of film school and they have camaraderie, camaraderie. <laughs> yeah, the camarad- camarad- camaraderie. Um, they have that thing. They have that thing where uh, they have like the fundamentals and the basics and all these little subtle things that you wouldn't expect matter that much when you're on set because it's like, well, as long as you have creativity and you know how to do things and, and you figure your filmmaking skills out, like, who's going to know the difference as long as it's cool on screen, right? Right. But when you're running a production and you see these guys from film school do their thing, it's like they're a well-oiled machine, you know? The efficiency is there. And when you have that organization, that efficiency, and that the, the foundation – it makes it easier for the creative elements to flourish, mm. you know, because you're like not that. caught up in like the mundane kind of bullshit. That's it's like mucking up the gears, you know. Right. Um, the snags. Yeah, no, I like what you said about teamwork. Like, I mean, you look at you look at uh, the credits on a movie, and you know, name after name after name. You know, mm-hmm. so it really it's all about the team uh, from the top to the bottom. And yeah, I. Um, I think it's one of those things where people that went to film school that said they didn't actually get to make films. And that that's what really kind of makes me sad when I hear that. Mm-hmm. You know, because I think what Tarantino is trying to say is, go make a movie. Yes, Let that, that is. Be your school. Yes, yes. But yes. if you're in film school and you're actually making movies, you're you're learning kind of where your, your aptitudes are, where they lie, where you feel like you gravitate towards. Because there's a million things from construction. I mean, it, there is literal engineers on set. Mm-hmm. You know, we're about to talk about Top Gun. And working with the Navy alongside, you know, scientists and, you know, camera people that design these cameras that yep. they have to put in the planes. And, yep. you know, you name it, you need, you need everything, mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. it takes a village. So, Arian, your resume and body of work is massive and all-encompassing. You have a website, ModShift Productions, um, sorry, ModShift.com. Mm-hmm. And then Modship Productions is your production uh, company. Your, your yeah. banner, yeah, got it. We also have a YouTube presence. Uh, what was your YouTube channel? Mod, it was. Uh, I have a Modshift YouTube channel that's dedicated to more of the artsy stuff. Uh, it's music videos, shorts, um, and then I have Modshift Motion, which is kind of dedicated to. Uh, Anything in motion, cars, motorcycles, surfing, like action kind of sports stuff. Yeah. Um, which is not too complicated, not not much story there, but it's just visual kind of experiences. and. Yeah. Actually, I'm really glad you said that because I think no matter what it is that you're doing, you know, 
documentary, music video, commercial, there's this cadence to everything you do that you're, it's like explorative. Like you're really showing from an explorative lens, from a, from a hungry perspective, like what's going on here? Let me get under the hood. Let me get into the nitty gritty, whether it's uh, loud spirit of the South, which I want to talk about, which is your uh, exploratory lens into the music scene of New Orleans, which I've never been to, but I feel like I've been there now that I've seen your short. <laughs> so anyway, I really got to get down there. But um, what a beautiful kind of look under the hood of the music scene there in 15 minutes, you know, mm-hmm. and there's this kind of cadence to it where you're showing it so raw, yet you're showcasing the beauty. It, it has everything you do has a documentary angle to it is what I'm trying to say. Does cool, that make any sense? cool. Yeah. Thanks, man. Um, yeah. Yeah. I know it's what powerful, you mean. Man. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I think it's, um, well, that's kind of my natural instinct and my natural uh, interest Mm -hmm. is to just kind of dig into why this is, why I want to watch or why I want to experience these, these subject matters, right? Like, because we know they're, they're interesting, interesting from the the surface and um, the cool thing about documentaries when you're when you're out there filming these things is you have complete freedom um to go and explore whatever you want there's no rules you know Mm -hmm. um so the origin of loud spirit of the south was really based on uh my fiance megan sutherland she had an idea power couple thank you sir (laughs) (laughs) um so yeah, you could do a whole podcast with her. Uh, that's a whole other thing. Like, uh, she's a powerhouse for sure. She has so many things going on. You guys are so great on. together, it's like, man. Thank you, man. It's just beautiful. To see you. <laughs> and really, congrats on the, the engagement. Thank you. you dude. Just announced. Uh, yeah. Was it the other night when we were out? Or was yeah, it I mean, uh, Ferris birthday party like a month ago, maybe. Anyway. Yeah. Big, big yep. news. Wow. Anyway, um, sorry to derail you. No, no, for sure. So uh, she had an idea about New Orleans based on some of her artist friends who had uh, left San Francisco, because she lived in San Francisco for a while, um, leaving San Francisco because of the kind of evolution into like being a more expensive place to live and mm. like all the corporate culture and stuff like that, uh, there was kind of an exodus. And where do they go? They go somewhere that's still cool, still fresh, has a lot of energy, but it's cheap to live. New Orleans. Um, so there's a huge art scene out there, and there's so many different layers to it. Obviously music, but it's kind of everything. And um, Just arts. Yeah, just arts in general. That town is just um, dripping with the arts. For sure. And and it, there's, a, there's a big sense of freedom to to operate there without being entangled in, in, in the professional side of things like it is here. Mm. You know what I mean? Um, in LA, it's like, it's such a workhorse kind of environment. Everybody's just kind of grinding, you know, over there, people are just a little, there's a little less pressure. So, and, and things kind of live in their own bubbles naturally. Like they incubate, Mm. Uh, a little bit they're a little bit more protected to to kind of like just grow their thing with less influence from the outside their, their niche yeah their right um so there was a lot of people moving out there and just doing cool stuff so um she had an idea about 
going out there and following some of her friends around and and just seeing what we get on camera and see what happens. So yeah, I think I spotted her in in the in the film. yeah yeah yeah. <laughs> yeah. I was like, oh, that's Megan. Okay, yeah, I know her. Yeah, we were living the experience and shooting a documentary, so we yeah. weren't. We didn't even go there with much of a plan. We just knew that when we showed up, we were gonna. We had a starting point, mm-hmm. and then we we're gonna roll camera, hang out with people, see what happens. Take it from there. And the plan ended up coming together pretty quick. Within the first two or three days, it just naturally the story presented itself to us. Like it was, we got to make this thing about music because everybody that we ran into was in a band or was on their way to go see a band and we just got sucked into it so we didn't have any kind of bias to focus on any specific genre we ended up just being like let's just go wherever the wind just blows us in this direction like let's go there so we ended up shooting almost every genre under the sun um talking to all kinds of interesting people and um, letting ourselves just sink into the mood there and, and hang out. So like when you see Megan in the documentary, that that's just her hanging out and partying, you know. We, we, we made so many friends. Yeah. People are just instantly open too. So very hospitable. Like, oh, you guys are shooting a documentary? Oh, yeah, you should talk to my buddy over here. It was like, and there was just no shortage yeah, of gonna, things I, to shoot. I was going to ask, like, did you have a couple people lined up and that led to other people? You just kind of showed up and you just... Yeah, know. we just showed up. Cause there was an initial plan that kind of got derailed a little bit because we were supposed to follow one of our friends around. And she actually put us on a path, like a starting point, And she didn't actually end up being much... Uh, part of the storyline in the end but she got us on the right path she kind of broke the ice yeah she kind of like yeah exactly got you going. um so at the end when i got home i had all this footage and i started to put put a story together from what we experienced and i started to see the story come to life and i was like all right we need to go back i went back one more time and with a clear intention of like all right i'm gonna get more footage of of this band this artist um get a little bit more scenery now that I know New Orleans and I had the experience and I was able to digest it go in farther on the second trip and really like do the research on the second trip the nitty-gritty yeah yeah and it was so easy to just finish it um it was when the story is there and and it's so rich of, of so many things to talk about it makes it really easy as an editor to to finish it yeah um, it does all the work for you. Right. You know? all, all you have to do is really point the camera in the right direction and have the right attitude as well. Like I said, don't interfere with the story. Don't try to mold the story. Let the story just come into the camera. Maybe that. You maybe know? that's it. Maybe that's what you just what you just said right now. And I was like, oh man, is Arian like a world class interviewer? Because it just felt like <laughs> uh, I don't know, like what questions he had. Because it has a very organic element to it. And even like your, you know, your docu stuff, uh, that's like the, the one bones where you're out in the desert with the woman, mm-hmm. it's just, you let the thing breathe mm-hmm. and let the thing just like be, but the angles you chose and the, the kind of visceral experience of it is so mm-hmm. powerful, no matter what it is you're doing. <laughs> Thanks man. And I, I really felt it like across all genres, not to say that you can't do everything, in yeah. theater, you know, right. but there was the style that emerged that uh-huh. I really noticed. I didn't, I didn't have time to look at all your 
50 million projects <laughs> um, but from the ones that I sampled I you know it, it really it showed it showed in all of them mm. you know it really you could really feel it cool thanks man so yeah you you have an eye <laughs> for it for sure with bones um that was fiction but I like that you see the documentary style of it too because um there's a fraction of it that is planned and then there's another element and and, and in bones it was more the environment itself. So th- it takes place in the in the desert at a location called Trona Pinnacles, which has been showcased in other movies as well. It's a very alien planet looking spot. It's actually a prehistoric lake. Yeah, where is it? Uh, it's probably three hour drive from from LA. It's uh, up north. Uh, Ridgecrest. It's right Ridge outside Crest. of Ridgecrest. Yeah, um, it's funny. I thought it was kind of documentary because it just feels like you. There's no voiceover. Mm-hmm. There's no dialogue. No dialogue in yeah. Bones. And we get this incredible woman, uh, <laughs> and, she, and she's out there, and she's got her compass. She's got her canteen. Mm-hmm. Her 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 little uh, her little jeep that looks a lot like your jeep. <laughs> um, so I actually thought, okay, this this is a person that it was my jeep. It was <laughs> After, your jeep. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that explains it. The Jeep in the film, I had that for probably, I don't know, almost five years, something like that. And that was a project in itself. Uh, I worked on that my uh, probably a couple years of, of work went into that. Became yeah. like a proper off-road machine. Uh, it was a character in itself, you know, in the movie. Yeah, really? Like, yeah. Absolutely. You know, here I am thinking this was a documentary about... Not a, not a word was said, no interviews, but I was like, oh, this is just a slice of this person's life. And it's so funny that I uh, thought it was a documentary about someone who, like, studies the desert or something. <laughs> I don't know. It was, like, I mean, that's what I'm talking about. You, you approach it with a very similar angle. Mm-hmm. Um, and not a word was said. And it was, like, so incredible. And I was like, man, this woman is such a badass. Kim Priest. Kim Priest. Yeah. Priest? Priest. 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 Mm-hmm. Tell, me, tell me about Bones a little bit. You guys all have to go go on uh, modshift.com and watch Bones right now. It's about 15 minutes long, and you're going to want to go on a little uh, road trip into the desert right after mm-hmm. it's over. I promise mm-hmm. you. Um, it was born out of a, kind of a string of other films, that I, short films I had tried to put together that ended up not reaching a completion because of various reasons. And this time around, I was like, okay, what can I make that requires the least amount of variables, you know, involving crew, actors? I'm I'm just, let's simplify everything. Mm -hmm. Uh, One location that doesn't have any interference. I'm going out into the middle of nowhere, into the desert, I have to work with nature, but there's no other people or things in the atmosphere that creep up and interfere. I was like, I'm over all these reasons why I can't make a film, right? And Let's just get out of here and go somewhere in the middle of nowhere. That's the first thing. And then working with one actress, um, just so that we could focus, you know, uh, and and get rid of all the variables uh, with with a large cast, you know, a crew and stuff. And so it was basically like, let's go back to zero. Yeah. Make this. 
and then let's go from there again you know like in future projects i can expand from there but yeah let's just start over um so i came up with a loose story and then i went location scouting and i found this place in toronto pinnacles and honestly the a lot of the story is is based on just where my imagination drifted in while I was out there by myself in the desert. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm really interested in in history and archaeology, anthropology. Uh, you know, everything in the Indiana Jones films is is right, like say, the birth Indiana of Jones. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Like kickstarted my imagination as a kid. Mm-hmm. Um, and there was a little bit of a there will be blood influence as well because okay. there's very very little dialogue in yeah, that movie as well. Yeah. Um, and telling stories with just images is what my goal was. So I was like, all right, we don't even have words, you know, like how simple can we go yeah. and still make like a little cool short film? And, and just so compelling. I couldn't take my eyes off of it. Cool. It was, it was like epic, <laughs> man. It was beautiful. Yeah. So it's it's kind of like worshiping nature yeah. uh, and letting the desert speak to you. I got most of my ideas from that, and then working with Kim, uh, she's we a, she's a you know man. yeah she she naturally is like a tough, strong kind of outdoorsy person in general mm-hmm. to begin with. So yeah, I was like, this is real. Yeah, I was like immediately thought of her. You know, and I, and she was immediately interested. Great. So, yeah, we just had a small crew. Um, we did it. We shot it in two days. And wow, that's it. Two days plus me going out there by myself and getting some extra uh, nature footage. You know, some time lapses and stuff. Yeah, yeah, man. That was the time lapse um, of the start. So, are we getting? A, speaking of nature, we're having a, <laughs> some loud. Uh, we live in LA here in Hollywood, and. Um, Car alarms going off. <laughs> Didn't hear any car alarms in Bones. Cut. Yeah, cut. <laughs> right. it's, it's, it's from the top. The shots of the stars. Yeah. How did you pull that off? Time-lapse shot looking up of mm-hmm. the sky on a beautiful, beautiful... I mean, when you're in a city like here in L.A., you don't see anything. You know, you're know, you lucky mm-hmm. if you see one star. Sometimes you see a little bit of the here and there, a couple stars. But when you're talking about layers and layers and layers of stars, shooting stars, yep. all, the thing, all the things. Wow. Yeah, you can't even really see what the what the time lapse is until you put it together. I, I'm I'm shooting uh, one photo every five seconds, and then that turns into 24 photos per second. Per second, you're right. And all of a sudden, you realize, oh, I I just saw ten shooting stars. I, I've seen clouds drift by that I couldn't even see with the naked eye. Uh, they're long exposures, so you're okay. picking up. Uh, a lot of light from the universe <laughs> coming yeah. down into the lens. Each photo is shot at, I think it was only a tenth of a second, you know, which is pretty slow. Right. So it allows the light to absorb into the sensor and, and pick up all these low light things that your eye can't really see too well, naturally, right? I was by myself in the middle of the night just shooting these time lapses you? you know it was that i was, was just by you? myself like in the middle of in, wow. in the desert it was so cool um just letting nature just give me all these shots it's like here you go take this you know like so beautiful cool. shots man out there yeah, it's staggering man unbelievable um you mentioned your motorcycle videos a little bit uh 
uh, mod motion. It's called mod. Sorry, what was the, the YouTube again? Mod shift motion. Mod shift motion. I love that you have the, the man umbrella of mod shift. <laughs> and you have your, your subcategories. Help you keep keep Ariane organized here because you know it's your body of work is so. Keep your body of work organized. Because <laughs> it's so so. Um, it goes on and on. But uh, these motorcycle videos, man, very similar cadence. Mm-hmm. To bones, you know, <laughs> no dialogue. Okay, a little, little bit of talking sometimes, but shot of you riding. Then a wide, you know, shot of you riding from really tight on the motorcycle. Then we see outside the motorcycle looking at you drive through this desert or this road or this highway. The, again, the cadence is very documentary edge. Um, you have hundreds of thousands of hits on these things. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, I know we talked about how, you know, when you find your niche on YouTube and it's a beautiful thing. Yeah. You know, but your motorcycle videos have insane amounts of views. <laughs> There's a big audience for it. Yeah. Um, and again, you know, the goal with that was it was similar to my other stuff. It's just like digging into the experience. What, right. Um, I'm trying to portray uh, the same things that in that kind of inspire me uh, before I sh- before I go out and shoot this stuff I'm already inspired and I'm already kind of taken in by by the nature and, and specifically on the motorcycle it, it's it's so visceral what you're taking in you know all the like from your starting point of your your driveway out to the highway out to the desert um, taking these different roads into nowhere and exploring and um, that that comes from just previous trips that I've taken many times and I've just been blown away my just by myself or riding with friends and and seeing pick like pulling in the scenery into your own soul you know and mm. and I and I'm trying to give that experience to everyone else when I when I show them these these films that, that's it's it, like man like, all of your things it's like you really pull people into the experience yeah you just show it there's no artifice there's it's just this kind of like wondrous look mm-hmm. into it under the hood. And I like how you said from, from your doorstep to out there. Because, mm-hmm. man, it really is a journey. Yeah, every one mm-hmm. of these videos is a journey. Yeah. It, yeah, it. you know, because I see a lot of stuff where they get too fancy with things. Mm. You know, um, for example, if you're, if you're showcasing a... Uh, a guy riding on his motorcycle and you get all these epic shots but the editor is just chopping it up as fast as he can because he thinks for some reason or she thinks for some reason that the audience is going to be bored if they stay on this shot for too long we've got to cut we've got to you cut know? we've got to cut we got to move but it's like look at the the shot is showing this epic <laughs> epic landscape and you need a couple seconds to even gather where you're at you know, and once you gather where you're at, you start sinking in a little further, and then it becomes an emotional experience. You know, because if, if you see this stuff too fast, it, it flies by. It doesn't sink in. Like you don't have time to enjoy it. You know, um, to really be put there. Yeah, and I feel like when I'm out there, you know, without a camera, it you're out there for eight hours, ten hours, something like that. These rides that when I when I leave the city, go out to the desert and come back, but leaving my house and getting back is probably like 12 hours, you know?
you're out there for like six to eight hours and within the first couple hours you're you're excited you're 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 feeling nature but a couple hours go by and further and you start to have that emotional connection because there's nothing else around and like you have it takes time to look when you're looking at a painting in a museum you know if you just kind of like look at it and then you're like okay cool let me walk over and look at the next painting it's like no you gotta sit there for a while man you gotta you gotta gotta like think about it for a minute you know and in the digital age especially the images come and go so fast that you you're only getting the surface you're not even thinking about the context you're not even thinking further into putting yourself into the shoes of being there on the other side i want you to feel the same way i felt when i was out there you know when i was covered in dust and and i was so exhausted and tired on my way home but still just loving every second of it you know just it really has an effect on you it's very powerful it's really powerful stuff man um and again you do it with very little dialogue or you know let the pic let the let the pictures tell the story right you know and i think sometimes we get so caught up in dialogue and uh you know we i write i write screenplays and getting caught up in the dialogue and what should i say or am i communicating enough but i think if you are putting the person inside the experience, mm-hmm. and that's our job as storytellers mm-hmm. to remember the storytelling elements, mm-hmm. and not just the the dialogue or whatever, but like actually putting the person there viscerally. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think the the best films over time are the ones that do that. Yep, know? and they last. They last the test of time. They're timeless. They're timeless. Yeah. What kind of rig do you have when you're out there? Like you're a shot of you on the motorcycle, and then there's a shot like really far away, and you can see you coming down the hill, and you know you <laughs> give you give the viewer that sense of space, right? So, actually, everything was planned. I basically, I ride out to the, I find a location, Mm -hmm. get inspired by the location, go back, you know, take some pictures, go home, think about it, and then I ride out again, and I'm like, let me just go through the path that I want to take, like, what is the ride, what is the journey that Mm. we're going to be taking, and it's mostly dictated by the beauty of the locations and the variety of locations, you know, going through different elements and different. So it feels like you're traveling through a distance. You know, if you yes. if you constantly see the same landscape or whatever, it, it's like you don't feel like you've traveled really. Right. And <clears throat> I want to give that sense of distance, you know, like, whoa, we've come so many locations and so many different environments and so many Right, yeah. like you said, you're out there for eight, twelve hours. Yeah. You know, if it's all the same shot, then the same look, then um, the same space. But yeah, I just storyboarded out, and I I figure what are the key moments that can visually portray the experience. So the next time I go out with the camera, it's all kind of clear in my head, and honestly, that that that's the only thing that makes it possible because. If we were out there just dicking around, you know, like, oh, let's shoot over here. Oh, that looks great. Okay. It would take days. Yeah. You know, because the location, I mean, we're traveling hundreds so of miles, right. you know, to, to do this. It's, it's like you got to know the exact spots and the shots that you're looking for and the, and the kind of riding that we're doing in these spots. So everything's figured out ahead of time, really. Wow. I yeah. Mean, that's, that's it. And, you know, they're only four or five minutes long, some of these videos. But I do feel like I've gone on a journey by the end of it. <laughs> it's wild, man. So okay, so you go out, you do a tech scout. You have like a, a camera car. 
car mounts. So we car mounts. yeah we do running shots where there's a car driving. Mount the camera to a car. We also do uh, just pull just holding the camera out of the window and just kind of like shooting with handheld. Uh, wow. We use a, a variety of um, telephoto shots, which are just on you know long lenses on tripods. Uh, which is like a great trick for um, absorbing the the sensation of speed, mm. and that's the other thing too is you want to constantly translate your shots into what the the motion is. So like having a long lens, you're way zoomed in on on a bike that's you know going across a trail, and you're panning with that bike. And you can right. see all the foreground just flying by, right. you know, and that's like that's communicating speed. And then when you're on a, a car mount, it's it's a completely different perspective because you're moving with the bike itself. Speed, uh, the camera and the bike are kind of moving at the same speed, but in the peripheral, you're getting all the peripheral of the road moving by, the the horizontal landscape just like rushing by, and you're getting a sense of speed from the perspective of the bike um instead of a an outside viewer like on a telephoto and then the static stuff is all it's just kind of like if you were going to take a landscape shot that you wanted to remember of this scene and just zooming by emphasizing just the landscape you know it's not all about the writer you know it's like we're not doing fancy tricks we're not going crazy on the bike um it's all about the the visceral experience that the writer is witnessing uh, throughout the journey have you been approached by like motorcycle companies or anything uh Maybe that's sponsorships <laughs> that's actually the next move um oh yeah yeah the the goal with this is it there's a lot of things in the future that i want to build on uh this is kind of the starting point but i do want to profitize uh in some way you know working with with brands and in, in a commercial sense yeah. in that motorcycle world and the in the the sports world and things that involve action and and taking those things and portraying them in in a different more artistic kind of avant-garde like abstract way i'm really humbled and blown away by what you've been doing ariana dude thank you so much yeah yeah so we're gonna keep an eye on you all right (laughs) here in the future yeah well i'd say it's time we transition into our feature to hear a little, I'm sure it's just scratching the surface, <laughs> about Mr. Arian Sohaley. Is that an Iranian, you said? Yes. That's a cool last name, man. Thanks, dude. I'm going to change my last name. <laughs> Since, uh, now I'm Andy Sohaley. So Join the club, man. That's settled. Uh, yeah, tell, you have to call your parents and get the blessing, or what do I, I got to do? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, talk to my dad, man. He'll be yeah. stoked. So we chose to do Maverick before it even came out. You and I were like, let's talk about the new Top Gun on the show, and you'll do the podcast. <laughs> yeah. And then we're like, well, we got to talk about the first one, too. Let's let's watch one, and then go see two, yep. and then we'll do the podcast. And that's pretty much what we did. We did the reverse order. So you, me, my buddy Ryan Grassmeyer, who's also on the show a few times now, uh, and Chase Offerly all went and saw it. It was my second time <laughs> seeing it. Uh, we went to a, uh, it was a Regal in North North Hollywood. Yes. 
And you, sir, <laughs> were on the danger zone the whole way there and back. Mr. Ariane here took his motorcycle, which featured in your videos. And um, you show up. You got the helmet. We got a photo of all of us. Uh, your call sign, what is it again? Stetson. Stetson, which is a type of hat, right? Yep. Classic cowboy hat. Yeah. Um, Megan got that hat for me, and I think it's a signature look for basically my you know persona character in wave lords our band together yes your band yeah. wave lords yeah so i'm kind of like the cowboy disco person you know yeah <laughs> you also you play guitar yeah god we didn't even talk about that in your in your other section here but we'll, we'll double back to that a little bit you're so metal man <laughs> yeah. your instagram is Ariane shreds yeah uh which you uh, certainly know how to shred sir <laughs> i think the first time i met you you had a guitar in your hand and you were just going going it down man yep and, uh, yep yeah was, wave lords uh... you guys are amazing <laughs> thanks man Got another show coming up in a few weeks right july. july 16th at the goldfish in highland park so you play guitar uh, DJ Carlo is your your spinner. Mm -hmm. You're so new metal. You have a scratcher. Yeah, it's a it's a blend of everything. It's uh, everybody brings their background to it. So Megan comes from a, just a diverse influence of uh, vocals, and she's really good with words. Um, but she's probably influenced from B52s to you know like house and electronic uh like psychedelic influences um and then carlo coming from electronic music and making music from that standpoint mixing with guitar riffs on my behalf which is born out of uh you know heavy metal thrash metal and blending all those things together, so you know. Cool, Honestly, it was it was it was beautiful. I was uh, you you gave me your amazing Canon to, to you're like here to photograph the thing. It was so cool to be the camera guy. Uh, and you know, I, I quickly learned how to use your rig, beautiful rig. Um, and it was such a, a collision of things. And we had Farah doing her right, yeah, Farah's in it too. Uh, so we had hip hop, we had metal, we had techno. Mm -hmm. um, honestly, Wave Lords was such a powerful experience. You <laughs> cool, guys, dude. you guys brought the place down. Uh, it was a Thursday night. Um, Hotel Ziggy. Hotel Ziggy. What a cool place. Yeah, it's a new spot on Sunset Boulevard, and they redid the whole thing this year. It's kind of like a '70s vibe again. <laughs> yeah, '70s is just kind of reoccurring lately a lot. Um, but yeah, the vibe is is super fresh. Um, a lot of fun coming out of the darkness of the last couple years. There's a new there's a new electricity in the air. You are such a top gun, my friend. <laughs> you play guitar, you ride a motorcycle. I wouldn't be surprised if you had your pilot license. You're like, yeah, I actually have my pilot license too. So anyway, this movie um, is such a it's such a triumphant return, speaking of returns. I feel like the 80s are back mm -hmm. in the best way. Not that this movie feels like an 80s movie. Top Gun Maverick feels like a movie from right now. Yes. But yes. it has the electricity and the power mm -hmm. and the octane of the 80s. <laughs> and honestly, Tony Scott, who has a nice immemorial of at the end, um, it really feels like Tony Scott was in there. You know, they yeah, know, they for know. sure. Directed by Joseph for Kuczynski. Sure. 
whom did uh, Tron Legacy, so he's not a, mm-hmm. he's not a stranger to sequels. Mm-hmm. Um, he also did Oblivion with Tom Cruise. Also right a very cool movie. I, I yeah. was I was thinking about rewatching that recently after I saw Top Gun. Me too. Let's do it. Yeah, I, I saw something pop up on the internet and I was like, Oblivion. I was like, damn, that was a good movie. It was it was sick. Yeah. Yeah, and it was I mean, I love sci fi and uh I, that's why I looked this guy up and he had so many sci fi credits and I, I thought Tron Legacy nailed a lot of things. Um my show is really a, a, a celebration. I don't wanna ever come off like I'm critiquing or anything, but I felt like this movie, Maverick, which we're focusing on today, just nailed it. Nailed it, dude. It nailed it. Yeah. What uh, what stuck out for you the most, like on your first on your first viewing? For me, it was it was a lesson, you know, like an educational experience on how to make a sequel. Amazing. Um, it was to the point where I wasn't even thinking about anything particular i was just kind of blown away and in the moment and i've i guess you know these days it's 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 kind of hard to to get that experience Mm -hmm. it's just it's there's fewer and fewer movies that are able to to push you in the future and and feel like you're this is modern cinema you know and it's, it's not it's not dependent on anything right it's just like whoa this is an amazing movie even though it's a sequel it doesn't even feel like a sequel. It no. just feels like a continuation, and it's done in all the right ways. I mean, all the details are there, but like I said, it's not dependent on, on the previous movie. I love that you said that, um, because my buddy who I saw, so I saw, I've seen it twice now. The second time was with you guys um, last week. But the first time was with my buddy Jack Dietrich, who I want to have on the show too. I met through Fair and Chase. They used to be neighbors. Mm-hmm. He has a podcast. He's a filmmaker. Brilliant guy. I acted in a couple of his music videos. He's, he's a genius. And he was like, oh my God, guys, Maverick. And I'm like, oh my God, do you like Top Gun? I didn't even like a Top Gun day. He's like, I've never seen one. Oh. And so his my first time seeing it was his second time seeing it, and he had never even seen one. Wow. And I was like, Man, that's wild that you love it this much, and it's blowing you away. And that made me realize I was like, "This has got to be something that stands on its own." It stands stands alone. It stands alone. Now we'll go into what makes it one of the best sequels I've ever seen. Mm-hmm. And I really I put it in the pantheon of great sequels. And there's really only a handful, I think. <laughs> and um, I just saw Aliens, the, se- uh-huh. you know, the second Alien movie by James Cameron, who I think is the master of sequels with mm-hmm. Terminator Two, which mm-hmm. was off of his own Terminator One. Yeah, but to come in. To come in eight years later from Ridley Scott's, you know, we've got a lot of Scott's flying around here. we got mm-hmm. Tony Scott who did the original mm-hmm. Top Gun, R.I.P. But Ridley, who had done Alien and had changed the sci-fi horror genre. I mean, mm-hmm. Alien is, is such a landmark film. And to come in and do it again, but change it enough, but honor it. So the, the job of a sequel is so hard because mm-hmm. you have something that's so loved. So you have to hit certain things mm-hmm. because if you're going to encapsulate the spirit of the original, it's got to do it well. Mm-hmm. But it also, more importantly, has to expand the mythology. Mm-hmm. And you're like, well, what are we doing here? Are, are we, I mean, how many times have we seen a sequel that's just one again or trying to be one again or trying to be two again and it's yep. the third or the fourth or the fifth? And now we're, we're living in sequilibrium right now like, yep. you know, where we're having yep. you know, franchises and it's all about franchising. We have Marvel movies. Um, we have sequel after sequel after sequel, reboots happening mm-hmm. left and mm-hmm. right. So Maverick is not a reboot. It is a sequel. 
to a movie that came out over 30 years ago, 35 years ago. Wow. It was supposed to come out in uh, yeah. 2020. We had some delays with pandemic. And then we had a situation where the box office was just people didn't want to go to the theater because they were afraid of getting sick. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, theater shutting down. And so it was going to come out in November of 2020. We ended up coming out at the end of May of this year. Um, we're now in June. It's almost been a month. The movie is about to cross a billion worldwide. What? So we're dealing with a situation Whoa. where a successful movie that came out in the 80s, that's so long. Usually they're like, oh man, if it's been 10 or 15 years, leave yeah. it alone. Right. Pet Cemetery sometimes dead is better. <laughs> so yeah. if you're going to go back into this character, and apparently, my first question was like, why wasn't this movie so long ago? Mm-hmm. Why wasn't Maverick? Why wasn't Top Gun 2 so long ago? Apparently, so Top Gun 1 was a massive hit. Mm-hmm. Uh, it was a $15 million movie, which even in 1986 really isn't that much. All right. Uh, but in the 80s, you were still, it wasn't, speaking of Cameron, it was Terminator 2 that was a $100 million movie. Wow. So in the 80s, I mean, you were still looking at movies that were in this budget range. Yeah. But it was a massive hit. Uh, it was a $15 million movie that did over $350 million worldwide. Damn. So that's like a 20 sometimes return yeah. of ROI, return on investment. Um, did I get the letters right? Yeah. <laughs> so honestly, the deck was stacked against this movie. Mm-hmm. It's been so long. Um, one thing about Top Gun is it's such an 80s movie. Mm-hmm. You know, when you think about the 80s, you think of Top Gun. Mm-hmm. You know, you think of the sound of the soundtrack, mm-hmm. which apparently went, I looked it up nine times platinum. Wow. Take my breath away. Obviously, Danger Zone. Jeez, yeah. Which, you know, which you and I live in always. Um, we haven't ever left. We don't need a highway to get there. We're on it. Uh, you took the highway to the Danger Zone on the way to see the movie, on your hog. But how do you do it? How do you bring it back and make it work? Mm-hmm. Now, approaching Maverick, we've got to talk about the effects. We've got to talk about the planes. Mm-hmm. We've got to talk about the cameras. Mm-hmm. And we've got to talk about the story. Now, for me, story is paramount. Um, I was like, this movie's going to be cool. It's going to have some cool plane stuff. They're probably, obviously, the technology since 86 has progressed. Sure. But what I wasn't anticipating, Ariane, was to be so blown away by the story and the character. Yeah. Um, I don't want to say, oh, it's yeah. better than one. It's, it's so hard to do that because um, you wouldn't have two without one. But let's go back to Maverick himself, mm-hmm. the character what he represents, and how they so eloquently brought him back 30-some years later. How do you do it right? Apparently, they approached him right away. They approached Ridley Scott, I'm sorry, Tony Scott and Tom Cruise about doing a sequel immediately. But they just were like, we don't have an idea. We don't. I mean, what do we, what do, we just do it again? So they had the integrity to say no when the demand was there. Because this was a hit. Mm-hmm. This wasn't like, a, oh, this became a... You know, on video sales over time and through cable, blah, 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 this became a hit. It was a massive hit when it came out. Uh, it showcased, you know, pilots. They used real planes. They got the support of the Navy. This is showing you the life of Navy aviators, mm-hmm. naval aviators. What for you, from a story standpoint, hit you hit you in the gut the hardest? Uh, There's probably a few things. Um, One was the way that... It wasn't just the film itself. It was Tom Cruise himself as as a person, as an actor. 
doing that in the 80s and then doing it now as a person and and as many movies as he's done personally has all this experience and and this life experience basically um and seeing him play that character as an older man is like well that's what the the movie really taps into is is the growth and the maturity that a person goes through right so in a sequel I, i think the the growth is 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 paramount to me it's like you need to you can't go back to where you were in the 80s you know mm-hmm. that it's just it's bullshit it's like where is this now like if you took the same person and you put him in 2022 what like what is that going to represent and and that's what it did in the movie it was like all about him just being that character as an older person you know yes and behind the scenes he was applying that and teaching that to all the the cast and even the crew it's like dude i was around 35 years ago doing this he's like i'm the teacher you know and they honored that so as a spectator you're like i was saying before i was like i was completely immersed and in the moment because i couldn't predict anything because I was being taught what it's like to be a guy who's been around for 35 years and he's like, hey, I'm still the best. I know all this shit that you probably have never even experienced. Let me show you what's up. Mm. And so there's so many layers of that as a person, as an actor, as the, the character itself. And then the story being relevant today independently from the past is a big deal because – I want to know that. I don't – I mean I care about the story from the 80s but we're not in the 80s anymore. So give me something that matters now. Mm. And I think that's what really uh, made it um, authentic and like it came off genuine, you know. Um, the other thing was like the nostalgia w- was uh, unavoidable for yeah. me. It was like I – you know, if you were around in, in that time period – uh, if you're if you're old enough to to remember seeing it as a as a kid, um, I haven't seen it since actually probably like the '90s or something like that. Mm-hmm. I watched it maybe a few times in my life, like three times maybe, yeah, tops. But I haven't seen it in at least like 10, 15 years. Yeah. Um. So it did bring a lot of my own kind of nostalgia from the '80s and the, and the '90s and stuff back into it was that was more emotional for me but again it's totally independent like it doesn't even matter the movie still holds up but it did emotionally hit me that much harder because it was right. it meant something yeah. because it was a growth from there you know yeah that was your that was the beginning wow lots to unpack here you said it so eloquently and i think that's what hit me in the gut with this movie that made it so good i this was on my list of movies to see i'm a, I'm a top gun fan I actually, real quick, uh, Top Gun One. I was one of the one of the movies that my uncle, my uncle Michael, he um, he had growing up on VHS, and I remember he'd have family parties and we watch it. And the, it was the game on Nintendo, which was yeah. impossible. And I still have never <laughs> landed that fucking plane to save my ass. Uh, if you can land that plane, you beat the game in my mind. Um, it's one of the most frustrating games ever, but it was a big part of growing up. I remember, you know, he had a Nintendo, mm-hmm. and these things were expensive back then. And before we had a Nintendo, he had a Nintendo. Yep. And we played Top Gun. And then he's like, you know, this is a movie. 
And we were like, oh, and then we put it on. So I got to see it really young. Um, and I've since seen it over and over again. And I've actually, just in the last month, I think I've watched it four times. I uh, had a Memorial Day party here, and we watched it. Because it's, it's on Amazon Prime right now. By the time you're hearing this, I'm not sure if it will be anymore. But it was on Amazon Prime, and it's on Paramount+. Plus. But it's one of those movies that, you know, it's timeless. What a, what a slice of the 80s Americana. You know, love it or hate it, it's, it's so ingrained in us. Yeah. So to come and to do it again so many years later, the only way that it's going to be a success is to do exactly what you just said. It turned a disadvantage of the so much time going by. Because that's usually the thing. It's like, oh, it's been so long, like it's over, right? Mm-hmm. Move on. But how do we take a guy who's still this pilot who refuses to move on? Mm-hmm. Um, Ed Harris so eloquently kind of puts the whole thing into perspective in the beginning of the movie. He's kind of like, here you are, uh, you know, you should be at least a two-star admiral by now, or a senator, Yeah. <laughs> but here you are, captain. And he's like, this is me, man. I'm Maverick. I am the captain. I, I mm-hmm. will not be grounded. They can't ground him. They won't, he won't <laughs> allow them to ground him. They won't allow, you know, they won't, he won't let, let them promote him. It's like, this is him. Mm-hmm. So how does he fit in? And now... Thanks to Iceman, which, another thing, they brilliantly took a disadvantage. Man. So apparently the evolution of the story with Iceman is, in 2010 they wanted to remake it, to make a sequel. And Tony Scott was still alive at the time. And it was going to center around Iceman and Maverick. And they were kind of the dinosaurs of, mm-hmm. of the 80s, mm-hmm. thrust into this new age. Valcomer sadly uh, got throat cancer and um, it was, was very, very sick. There's a documentary I need to watch called Val that I'm just dreading kind of me too i've been shying it away from it because i'm just like this is going to be too sad it's gonna be too sad so they brilliantly wove it in that uh iceman tom kaczynski his character's name but we all know and love him as iceman is now an admiral is now is now in a position of power he's he's now a desk guy Mm -hmm. so um, he is the he's the kind of foil to maverick in that he's now a desk jockey but he has a lot of pool so he's like the guy you need to teach these new whippersnappers this impossible way to fly, where they have to dogfight, blah, blah, blah. Computers have gotten better. Technology's gotten better. But what hasn't changed is the human equation. Mm-hmm. You know, that's timeless. It's not the plane, it's the pilot. Mm-hmm. You know, that's, that's like the kind of tagline. Yep. One of the taglines of the movies. Don't think, do. Mm-hmm. You know, a computer will never have that gut. Mm-hmm. Well, a computer will never have that gut instinct. And Val knows... Maverick is my man, and this is the solution. This is the, this is how Maverick can stay alive by teaching these guys. They're trying to ground him. Uh, the movie starts with him being a. Uh, I love it. He's he's still a test pilot. He's pushing. They're trying to get Mach 10. They're about to pull the plug, because um, you know Ed Harris's character, who's an admiral, is like, if you guys can't do Mach 10, you guys are done. So literally, they beat him there. It's brilliant. They beat him there because <laughs> uh, he's about to say it's over. They're like, screw it. We're going up anyway. Maverick goes, ends up destroying the plane, breaking the limits. Such an average thing to do. <laughs> brilliant, 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 brilliant. Um, Ed Harris, uh, let's see. His character is uh, Chester Hammer Kane. His his name's, his call sign is Hammer, which I think is brilliant because he's the, he's the hammer guy. He's, mm-hmm. he's bringing the hammer down on the whole thing. If they can't deliver a Mach 10... This is, this is cold open. Brilliant. Brilliant, right? Um, crashes the plane. Maverick, obviously, he can't stop at Mach 10. He's got to go Mach 10-1. <laughs> He's got to go Mach 10-2. He's got to go Mach 10-3. Crashes the plane. They don't know what to do with him. And it's Iceman who brilliantly 
is the plot mechanism to protect him. Mm -hmm. And then, you know, Val's actually sick. He can't talk anymore. Apparently they got a son now to, to do his voice. Apparently his son did the voice uh, voiceover in, um, in the Val documentary yeah. because he can't talk. It's really sad. It's really, it's really, really sad. But they took a sad thing and they brilliantly wove it into the plot. I know it was perfect. It gave me chills. This I movie, mean, just honoring uh, him as an actor and as a character at the same time. Exactly. Yeah. And literally, the story goes: is Tom said, "I need Val. I need my Iceman, man. If we don't got Iceman, I'm out." You know, so it wasn't it wasn't a situation where, you know, what happened was is they were in development a while back, and Tony ended up passing away. Tony mm -hmm. Scott, R.I.P. Brilliant, brilliant guy. Mm -hmm. You know, and his spirit is in this film. And I, honestly, it, it's such a it's such a beautiful honor to him, an honor to Val, an honor to the original film. But it was one of those situations where it had to be this long. It was brilliant that it was this long. Yeah. And Kaczynski, who directed it, really did a bang up job. We'll talk about the camera stuff soon and the training they went through. Um, but from a story standpoint, this movie works because. It is the passing of the baton from that era to the, mm -hmm. to the new era. And I like what you said about teaching. And there is this stigma about teaching that I've heard over the years. And actually, I've had friends that are brilliant um, say they want to teach, but they're like afraid of being thought of as uh, that's kind of a, a step down or, or a concession in some way. Like, and the, the terrible, miserable slogan, which I'm about to use, which we should all forget, uh, those who can't do, teach. Mm. And I think there... That is such a shitty, shitty, yeah, shitty thing. It's terrible. It's terrible. And teachers inspire us. Um, I every time I make a project, I think of a few words from from film professors that I had in film school. Uh, even I had a high school teacher named Dr. Crum, just passed away at the end of 2020. But oh. the guy literally wrote the book on AP history. Literally, the book that you get in AP history, he wrote. Whoa. Um, he blew my mind. You know, mm -hmm. uh, history was never something I wanted to pursue, but. His, his style of teaching put pe the kids in the driver's seat and mm -hmm. he got everyone to jump in and give an opinion, no matter what. He got you engaged. He saw you sitting in the corner in the back of the room. This is high school, by the way. Mm -hmm. Bored, hunched over. Jim, what do you think? Where's your stance on this? Textbook aside, you know, did you do your homework? Yes or no, whatever. But he got people engaged. And I was like, man, this guy is an amazing teacher and he's always stuck with me. I always think of him always think of him and this movie is about a guy who doesn't want to teach they're like no i'm not a teacher after the events of talk on one and if you um i just rewatched one like i said four times he talks about like oh i want to be a professor at the end yeah he Maverick does says. and then brilliantly in this one they're like oh yeah i tried teaching ice but kind of hero's journey like refusal of the call mm -hmm. we need you to teach this new crop to go on this mission we Destroy some uranium enrichment plant. We don't know the details. It's NATO says this place has got to go. This is your this is your impossible mission. This is your Death Star. We got to get a team of guys. Computers can't do this. We need pilots. Yep. And they got to be able to dogfight. We need a slice of the '80s now, man. Who do we bring? Ice says Maverick. You're the only guy. Maverick says I don't want to do it. It's so brilliant. I can't <laughs> teach. I can't teach Ice. And he stays on him, and he stays on him, and obviously, you know, the movie's got to happen, and uh, <laughs> he says yes. This, to me, is what blew me away the most. Sure, I knew this movie was going to have cool plane shots. You know, I knew it was going to be a fun ride. 
But Ariane, I had a love in my throat the whole goddamn time. Yeah, me too. I felt it was very emotional. It was very powerful, right? Yeah. Um, you know, there's a lot of things going on. Like, you, you see, like you said, you were thinking about your professor. Um, you also see other mentors in your life, mm. uh, you know, older generations um, that connect with you, learning lessons from older generations. Uh, that That was a big... That was one of the main things in Top Gun, and it was like respecting uh, the life experience of those who have come before you. Because ultimately, it's like Passing you're only course. here because of the last generation, anyway. We're on the backs of the generation before. Yeah, always. You yeah. know, um, they built the world that we live in today. Every every older generation looks at the younger generation and says, like, "Oh, you guys aren't listening. You think you know everything." Right. Um, but it's kind of amplified in our generation because of media, because mm-hmm. of the digital age, right? So it gives everyone a louder voice, and it's a little harder to to hear the older generation sometimes because they get like drowned out, and they don't have as many followers. Yeah, you know they're not <laughs> on Instagram. It, yeah, exactly. So you know, where where their voice is not as loud sometimes in the social media landscape that we're in. Yeah. Right now. And and you see that in the movie with all these younger kids that right. have the granted it's like if you're in your early twenties you're gonna and you're a fighter pilot you better have a big like sense of confidence mm-hmm. you you probably should feel like you know it all you know yeah, uh, like to an extent one. yeah exactly right you need that attitude to to survive yeah um, but at the same time when you when you see uh, Maverick in, in, in 2022 and you see how natural it was for for them to, for all these younger guys to, like, when it really came down to it, they're like, damn, this guy really is way better than we are. This really is a legend. Like, he can fly better. He, he he has better instincts. He has a better strategy on handle the, handling these situations. Mm-hmm. Um, and to see the tables turn with these uh, younger pilots and and how they are completely dependent on Maverick at this point, and they're completely mm-hmm. in awe of him too. Yeah. And it's like, man, I I'm in awe of like all kinds of older generational uh, achievements. You know, like even looking at your own your own family, like your uncles, your your, yeah, your yeah. father, your mother, like their generation, and their grandparents and their great grandparents. Like, think about all the achievements that they've done and. You have to remember how how epic and how far they were coming, you know, in in, in their time. You know, like don't forget that, and, yeah. and and that's a big thing in this movie. It's like, I guess that's why it's so emotionally uh, powerful. Is because that element is 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 just life. You know, sometimes you're in the moment so much, and then you suddenly realize, like, oh my god, the things that they've accomplished like 50 years ago, a thousand years ago, it, it's like. Maybe even more impressive than all the technology and, and, and the high-tech stuff that we have now. It's like mm-hmm. people were impressive in every generation prior to us doing amazing things. And um, learning from the past is like, I don't know, it's it's it, it, it's pretty cool. It's like That's it's powerful. an emotional thing for me for sure. Yeah, yeah. And I, I like that you're touching on a lot of themes that are here, the generations. Um, I, I liked how it was kind of uh, – so – 
to look at Maverick, you look you have to look at both films. But in one, he's the cocky pilot, mm-hmm. and like you said, you got to you got to have that confidence because otherwise you're gonna die. Yeah, you know you've got to be able to go up there and and then, but then what happens is you get to the situation where the technology has advanced and advanced and advanced and advanced even since the '80s, but this mission requires the human element. Yes, you know, and no matter how much technology and how much infrastructure we build up uh, as a civilization, the human element is the timeless element. Mm-hmm. And even as a movie, that's what we're picking up on. Um, yep. So yep. that's why movies that last last because, like, okay, like in twenty years, like Maverick won't have the coolest planes anymore. It won't have the coolest effects anymore. Mm-hmm. But it's the human condition. Yep. And we got to talk about Goose. Uh, played by Anthony Edwards in Top Gun 1, who, spoiler alert, he does die. Maverick carries that. And then, literally, the scene after he dies, we're in the bathroom with Maverick in 1. And Tom Scare comes in, and he's like, you gotta let go. Mm-hmm. It's a little callous in 1, because they're like, the motherfucker just died. Absolutely. Like, two seconds ago. But that becomes the hook of the next one. And this is where I couldn't believe it when I saw it the first time I saw Maverick I literally was probably annoying to the people around me sorry if you were around me I was like I can't this is great this is the hook you have Miles Teller who plays Lieutenant Bradley Bradshaw Rooster <laughs> who is the son of Goose yep. another another uh, bird Rooster uh, <laughs> Goose that wasn't it that was obviously you know intentional but now Maverick is trying to protect him because Meg Ryan who dies off camera between the events of the two films says don't let my son follow in the footsteps of my late husband who died mm-hmm. because he became a naval, naval area, uh, aviator and Maverick even brings it up in the scene with Iceman where we get we get one scene with Iceman it's a lot of texting at first with Ice like, yeah. that's just Ice by the way he, <laughs> Maverick just he's so cool he doesn't even have to say the man he's just Ice but he even says and he types it because he can't talk Val types it on the, the computer in front of him. You have to let go. And he stares at it. And he starts crying. Damn. And then I start crying. And I, 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 yeah. I saw you messed up a little. I was next to you. Know, <laughs> I had, it was Chase. It was me, Chase, and then it was you. And I had Grassmar on my left. But that, that power of that movie, mm-hmm. man. People go in expecting just an action romp. And they get so much more. Yeah, it's, it's real life. So, it's real life. And that is the hook of the character. That's his Achilles. That, that's his flaw is that he can't let go of, of Goose's death. And he carries Goose's death. Even though he was exonerated by the military, it was a technical flaw. It wasn't his fault. But Maverick carries the burden. And now you have a situation where he stifles Miles Teller's character. He stifles Rooster's character. He pulls his papers. He sets him back four years. He fucks up his life. And now there's the grudge. Mm-hmm. He can't just say, oh... Your mom doesn't want to, because he doesn't want want him to resent the mother who's now gone, which is super sad. Yeah. And Rooster, how? I mean, did you did you think that Miles Teller looked like him? Did he did he hit it on the head for you with the mustache? Because that was. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, and how he plays the piano and they're back. Yeah, the absolutely. Yeah, man. Uh, yeah. Oh, that was an emotional scene too, man. Just seeing. Uh, yeah. When he gets when Tom Cruise get, gets kicked out of the bar. And he's looking through the window, and he's just absorbing all the emotions of right. reliving that. Um, yeah, that was pretty, pretty deep. Yeah, I mean, 
Again, we have like the what like in one they go to the watering hole to hang out, you know, to pick up girls. This is a target rich environment. And then, <laughs> and then in two, it's uh, you know owned by Jennifer Connelly, who's the love interest. But they didn't, they didn't. It wasn't heavy handed in Maverick. Um, the movie really took the time to focus on on Maverick's character, but he also wanted to find love, and he still wanted to find the next chapter of his life. You mm-hmm. know what what does he want out of life right now? You know what's what's next for Maverick. But how can I teach this new crop? And honestly, I loved how they wove it into the bar, and that was kind of like the watering hole. And then you had Rooster basically being very goose-like, where he playing the piano, great balls of fire again. Yeah, uh, yeah that whole scene where he's, they make him walk the plank, and they throw him out, yeah. they, literally, they literally chuck him out of the bar. Yeah. Um, but yeah, Jennifer Connelly's character was so good, and I guess there's reference to her in one, how, uh, you know, how... Tom Cruise dated her. They dated her an admiral's daughter. Yeah. And he was just like, you know, he has he gets the hottest ladies and Meg Ryan's kind of like <laughs> talking him up at the bar and one. Right. So uh, this the whole generational baton being passed on and getting to see these guys out of the planes and out of the classroom and get to see their kind of like just the streets. You know, so you had honestly it was the second viewing that I caught that the bar was called the lower deck. Um I'm sorry, not the lower deck, the uh, the hard deck. The hard deck, which oh. is which is the name of how low you're allowed to fly in the missions. Mm-hmm. And that's always a, a source of concern. And in the ma- in the major mission, you know, they can only fly 100 feet off the ground or whatever. Yeah. And he has to lobby with Cyclone, who's the kind of, the, the new the new sheriff in town. And he's like, played by John Hamm, who did such a good job being the skeptic. He did. He's like, I don't know what you have to offer, you know. <laughs> he's kind of the bureaucrat. It's almost like they're jealous of Maverick. <laughs> Right, you know they're I like that vibe too. Yeah, I mean, because they have such a formed opinion about him, and like it's a resentment. But now that I'm thinking about it, it's almost like they were just jealous, you know? Yeah, like they yeah, wish they the... could be in those planes doing what he was doing, but right, they're not. Yeah, they're the they're the desk jockeys. Yep. you know they they rock a desk, he rocks a plane, and that's the whole theme of the story: is a man who refuses to be promoted to be the desk jockey. He wants to fly. This is his life, you know? And so how do you maintain that later in life? How do you maintain the spirit of that? And then him teaching the next generation. Let's bring up some of these, some of the next gen actors because the collision of the old team and the new team. Totally. We have uh, Bashir Salahuddin as Hondo. He's kind of the, he's kind of the helper. Uh, we got Charles Parnell, who's um, an, another administrative warlock, but he's kind of more in touch with like what needs to happen. And he's always kind of like sticking it to John Hamm, like we need these guys, you know. Um, we got Monica Barbaro as Natasha Phoenix Trace. Um, she's fantastic. She's great, yeah. Great. It's nice to have nice to have some strong female uh, pull in there. Lewis Pullman as uh, Lieutenant Robert Floyd Bob. Yeah. <laughs> Call <man>. sign Bob. <laughs> he's great. He's kind of the the nervous kind of nerdy uh, take on mm-hmm. it. Uh, we have Jay Ellis as Lieutenant Ruben Payback. Uh, Danny Ramirez as Lieutenant Mickey Garcia fanboy, and then Glenn Powell, who so brilliantly plays the cocky uh, Jake Saracen, who's Hangman. Yeah. Who's very much the new Iceman. Yeah. You know, even having the word man in there. Uh, Jack Schumacher as Omaha, Manny Jacinto as Fritz, uh, and then Carol Wong as Halo, Greg Davis as Coyote. So we get this new group, and... The one line that kind of sums it up for me is when Hangman calls Maverick old-timer at the bar. 
And he had the bike. <laughs> Remember the scene where he buys him all the drinks? Yep. Um, so here it is, you know, the literal passing of the baton. But the respect that they, look, we said before, the respect that they get for him as it mm-hmm. goes on really plays out so well mm-hmm. that you can't do it without this old school generation. Yeah. You know? That this is, a, I love how they, they orchestrated a mission and they kept it very not political. We don't really know. It's some uranium enrichment plant. Yeah, that was an interesting choice, too. They really created such a great film without even going into detail who the enemy was. Right. I'm totally fine with that. Yeah, yeah. Not to get too political, but I guess in my research about one, which this is totally new to me, I guess one of the the criticisms of it was that it was uh, super Jangoistic and that it was like American military over everything else. And, Mm. you know, we're the good guys and everyone else is the evil, like, unknown bad guy. Um, and you can argue that this might be present in this one as well, but I feel like they did such a good job of stripping away those elements and making it more about the humans mm-hmm. than the pilots. Mm-hmm. Did you ever feel like it was uh, like a commercial to be in the Navy, or did you ever feel like it was too too much, or did any of those elements bug you at all? Or uh, I think it kind of lands in the middle for me, mm-hmm. uh, personally, because, you know, there's on one spectrum, there's Apocalypse Now, you know, or like Platoon, or... Uh, full Metal Jacket. Right. And then on the other side, there's like 300. Mm. And they're two extremes. Right. Um, you know, one one side is being very critical of, of the military, and you're clearly, you know, this wasn't a, a, a political kind of uh, influence to, to join the military because war seems like hell, you know? And it was, and, mm-hmm. and those films were, trying to communicate uh some truths about the horror and and the brutality of war the horror. yeah the, the horror, horror. <laughs> so good. just watched it last week dude. oh did you yeah it's such a masterpiece it's a masterpiece yeah um and then 300 which i actually liked a lot when it came out and then you know i, I see it now and i'm like wow this is uh you know we don't have to go too much in the, into this but to me it's like pure propaganda this is yeah. actually a 300 podcast so <laughs> sorry everybody if you came from maverick i think it's a lot if you don't know what i'm talking about it's probably a lot to uh to take in because it's just a general statement that i'm giving you and, and it's just a, a bigger conversation to go into but if right. you do know what i'm talking about there's your two ends of the spectrum right and then top gun is kind of in the middle because it doesn't really portray the enemy as a a culture as a as a nation um it's it's a blank kind of fill in the blank situation right and it's more about the personal experience of these soldiers you know these these warriors that are for whatever reason that they join the military, you know, that's your personal uh, journey and your personal choice to, to join the, the military. But once you're there, it's like, this is your job. This is your thing, yeah. And once you're there, it's like, all right, let's let's go. I mean, it, it's it's too late to... to <laughs> Have an opinion now. Yeah, you're yeah. like, you're, you're in it. You're in the danger zone. So <laughs> you got to get out of there. You got to survive and you got to do what you got to do. Yeah. So this movie focuses on that, and and I, I like the the fact that it, it just be it, it just focuses on on the on the personal experience of the human, you know, because there's mm. there's humans on both sides of every war, you know. Yes. It's not um, these aren't easy subjects to to have black and white opinions about. 
So when you make it a little bit more vague about who the enemy is and it's more about the person in the, in the cockpit, um, I think you're kind of in the middle of the spectrum. I don't think it's uh, I don't think it's a propaganda piece, but I also think it's not even too critical on war itself. It's just being human because wars have been around since the beginning of time and mm-hmm. millions and millions and millions of human beings have participated on on both ends yeah you know so it's just getting into the human element of of that you know in this specific time a soldier in a very technically advanced uh situation flying a plane which is like 0.001 percent of of the military population gets to be in these planes you know right Uh, it's a very very specific special unique situation to be in yeah wow that's 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 amazing, Ariane. That's really super well said, and I I, I totally agree with you. And um, watching a really great making of uh, Top Gun One, um, it was uh, Jim Cash and Jack Epps Jr. who who co-wrote it, and they said they approached it not as a war piece, but as a more of a sport piece. And mm, I, at first I was like, oh, okay, I'm, yeah. Um, and basically, um, Jim Cash was a was was a pilot. He, he still is. He was like a commercial pilot. He's actually flown some planes. And then there was the big article called Top Guns in 83 in, in a California magazine. And it had a picture of a, a fighter pilot, you know, out the window with another plane behind him and we're in the sky. And he was like, there's a movie there. And I've flown a bunch. Um, but then he actually got to experience some of the, the real physical rigorous side of being a high G pilot, you know. There's one thing, you know, flying a plane is one thing, you know, you have a little one engineer guy or, you know, you, you might feel some G's, yep. but you're not feeling the G's that these guys feel in these tight yeah. tanks and tight turns. And he's like, you can't, you have to be in peak physical shape to be able to handle this. This is a sport. You know, this is something that your, your whole body's involved in. You're not just hitting, you're not just hitting a lever and going up in the air and mm-hmm. then hitting a lever and coming back down. Your mm-hmm. body is on the line, is in this thing. You feel the G's, you feel the torque. And he, and he was like, this is what really communicated that. And that, that actually led them to manufacture the, the trophy in one, that there was going to be an inter. Oh. You know? And then the real pilots were like, there's no time for, uh, these guys are literally like, just balls to the wall trying to get through this rigorous, hellish program to, to graduate. They're not, they're, they don't have time for like an inter, you know, collegiate tournament, <laughs> you know, kind of like they do in Harry Potter. Um, yeah. They actually lose in the second one, um, in Maverick, but... It ended up creating that rivalry with him and Iceman and everything. It was great. It's, it's a great mechanism. But then you're like, okay, that's why we want to have these scenes in the locker rooms. That's why we want to have the volleyball scene. We want These guys are, are athletes mm-hmm. to a degree that are all bonding in these high-pressure, high-stress scenarios. And even the, the slogan of, oh, we're all on the same side, we're all on the same It's like being on a team. It's like mm-hmm. being on a, a football team. Absolutely, yeah. So they went in with that lens, which I was, I was so struck by that when I watched the making of... Um, but in, in crafting two, obviously they wanted to bring the reality of those G forces on the screen. And when you go see the movie, you're greeted before the movie starts. You're greeted by Tom Cruise saying, "Guys, this is real, real G's. This is the real deal. We really did all this. Badass, dude. There's no computer generated. Yeah. This isn't some computer generated Death Star like end fight. You know, uh, really wanted to physically, viscerally put you there." It was worth it. It was worth it. 
I mean, when when you watch something that you know for a fact that these actors were were going through like flying for real in these planes, mm-hmm. I'm completely. Um, it's I'm just so much more in belief of what I'm seeing um, as opposed to you know too much special effects, too much CGI. Uh, that's the downfall is like, well, I'm watching a cartoon, you know, I'm not yeah. fully, I'm not emotionally there, man. Yeah. Um, I'm watching a cartoon. I like that. And, and to me that epitomizes what you actually said about bringing the spirit of the eighties back. So they bring the spirit of the eighties back by making it real. Cause in the original, they're like, we really have to have the Navy on board. We can't fake this. And they yeah. didn't even have back in the eighties. They didn't even have the computer stuff that they have now to yeah. even be able to begin to try. But, um, uh, Brockheimer and Simpson, they were like, we want this to look real. Otherwise, it won't work. So going real looks better, feels better. It's all around better. So they achieved one on a $15 million budget by having the cooperation of the Navy. Um, and they would film planes that would you know, be in their normal routes. And apparently, whatever they did that was beyond whatever the normal routes were or the normal things, to get all the shots, of the, the aerial shots, and the shots of the aircraft carriers... Which is actually, the aircraft carrier is the USS Enterprise. No way. Uh, so I'm a big Star Trek fan. So, uh, <laughs> oh, man. Yeah, that's the actual name of that reel. Uh, and apparently there's, there's a famous story that Tony Scott needed the flip of the aircraft carrier around for a, for a shot. And he paid some ungodly amount of money in his pocket. <laughs> like, he was like, here's a hundred grand or whatever. Like, he wrote him a check. It was just like... Psh. Wow. Yeah. And uh, the movie ended up being a massive hit. But that was literally like Tony Scott just being like... That was the so, right decision. So the movie succeeds really well. Obviously, they had a, they had one cockpit in one. They had one cockpit set that they, they all had basically all do all their coverage and they all had to mm-hmm. take turns and they you know redress the cockpit for the different planes. But in two, they're like, okay, we're actually going to do it. Mm-hmm. We're actually going to get these these actors up there. This time, uh, had a budget of it's actually not insane uh, for one hundred seventy million, and now they're looking at a billion already. Jeez. Um, but they were like, we really want to put these actors up there. These guys worked for 14 months to get the cameras inside the cockpits to do what they had to do. Whoa. Now, this is the part that I really, really didn't know, and I had to do a lot of homework on this, was that uh, Kaczynski was like, we'd run, we'd run the movie like a play. We'd run it, and we'd run it, and we'd run it, and we'd run it. We'd run it like a play. And, but then when they're up in the air, it's on the actors to turn the cameras on, to get the shots they need, and to come back down. He and Kaczynski was like, it was it was really hard for me, because obviously as a director you want to be there. But we got to be so trustworthy and trusting of each other. Um, and then the actors said it was actually a thrill for them to get a little more hands-on in the actual filmmaking. Mm-hmm. You had to understand what made a good shot. Eyeline, angles, things that you might not necessarily have to worry about all the time, but now you're actually responsible. So they used IMAX cameras, um, one hour of this two hour and ten minute movie is, is shot on IMAX cameras. Basically all the aerial photography. Mm-hmm. Inside the jets, outside the jets. They said that they could use regular lens, use regular stock for um, for the ground stuff, the, the scenes. Kaczynski says, oh, for the intimate character stuff, we're fine. Yeah. But when you're up in there, he's like, I wanted it to really, you, the, the audience, to really feel it. Mm-hmm. Which... You know, we obviously did. I've already gone back for a second time. 
And now, I actually missed it in IMAX in its original run. You only had 13 days, and then Jurassic World 47 came in and, and knocked it out. Yeah. And literally, the day I saw it was what I had... I had no idea at the time that it was the last chance I was going to have to see oh. it in IMAX. But... After a fan outcry and the filmmakers being like, guys, literally, we spent the lengths that we went to, to bring you this this technology, this IMAX technology. And when IMAX is, it's a, it's a bigger it's a bigger field. Of yep. you, it's a bigger frame. Up, your up and down axes are much higher and lower. Mm-hmm. So the scope of it, and it's like we wanted to actually capture what it feels like to be up in there. Mm-hmm. And they succeeded, man. And I actually haven't even seen an IMAX yet, and I'm, I'm still blown away. <laughs> but I couldn't believe it. I and mean, Kaczynski's like, yeah, well, they go up and they get their stuff. They get their coverage. Wow. We have a two-hour briefing with the pilots, with all the cast and the producers. Yeah. Every day, two hours. Painstakingly go over the entire shot list, what we need. Then they go up. They get what they need. And it's out of Kaczynski's hands at that point. But, yeah, you, you could tell the difference. I mean, yeah. it, it's like monumentally different you you could see the backgrounds and the images and and the yeah. way that the they're uh moving in the cockpit and the g-forces and everything are so apparent you in the new one it, yeah yeah and it was such a big part of training them and you know that one so it's, it's a situation where they have to dive it's like it's like going inside of a volcano hit the hit the t- hit the target then then they called it this the three miracles mm-hmm. you know get there, the two miracles the right was it two or three I thought it was two. Because the one was I think like... Coming Home was the third miracle. That oh, okay. Cyclone <laughs> yeah. yeah, that's what Maverick was like, coming home, right? They're going to come home after, right? Yeah. And he's like, eh, well, we'll see. <laughs> uh, so um, that was kind of the bureaucracy versus the, the practicality. And Maverick yep. was like, you know, Maverick was still morning goose. And he felt like he didn't want to jeopardize the lives of these new kids. And he had to overcome that fear. But And then he gets to sacrifice himself in a way at the end and then he still comes out of it and that's the most redeeming part in the movie too is is the end it's it's such a it feels like such a good conclusion everything comes for full circle perfectly it's so it's so exciting to see a movie soar literally <laughs> like this because it's actually good yeah i mean i thought it was going to be good but i was just actually blown away yeah honestly this is one of the best theater experiences i've ever had yeah, man. And I'm, I'm still reeling from it. I'm literally going to go back for a third. I never go back for a second. If I, if I go back for a second, it's because it's a Ghostbusters movie <laughs> or a Star Trek movie. So I like Top Gun and all, but, you know, this one's doing something. And to get back to what you said about uh, the end and the redemption, it's so powerful the way they do it. And we, talk, we talked about Iceman kind of protecting him. Mm-hmm. And then, then you lose Iceman. Mm-hmm. He passes away, which is sad and poignant. But again, another loss from his old days. And now Maverick even more so is like, oh man, I'm the last yep. of my kind or whatever, you know. Um, everyone else has either been retired, grounded, or killed. Yeah. So how do I represent this this past era in, in a beautiful way with this new crop? And how do I teach these new crops? You know, the new crop. And then he doesn't even want to. He, he doesn't even want to wear the weight of it at first, and that's his journey. But... Him and Miles Teller, the way they do it. So he's afraid of Miles Teller dying. Finally says, all right, I have an opportunity to pick who's going to go on the mission. And you're like, oh, man, well, he has an opportunity again to stifle Miles. Yeah. And be like, I don't want you to die. I made a promise with your mom. But you know he's going up. It's the inevitable. Because yeah. uh, he knows that he, Miles Teller has to 
go through his journey. Mm-hmm. You can't you can't stop somebody's journey. It's it's not fair. I mean, even though he's just looking out for him, like any father would look out for his son. I mean, you're just being careful. But mm-hmm. at the end of the day, it's like, well, there is a time to let go, and you have to let let every human being live their journey. You know. Yeah. Let them drive on the highway. Yep. To the danger zone. It's their time for the danger zone. And the way the movie switches gears into this kind of behind enemy lines. Uh, actually, Grassmeyer has said it best. He's like, oh, suddenly it becomes this behind enemy lines war movie. <laughs> but it becomes this kind of buddy survival movie with the two of them. Yeah. And then it's the reverse of Maverick going down to protect his... Oh, that would be heroic, right? My final act would be to save the life of my, my friend's kid who's get, who's dead. Mm-hmm. Who I've stifled because I've been afraid of hurting. And then letting him go. And then letting him in. And then sacrificing himself. But then, <laughs> having Rooster go back to fucking save him. Yeah. Dude. That's what you're talking about when you're talking about that, that emotional power of yeah, climax. Yeah. And then it keeps going, it keeps going, it keeps going. Yeah. And then they get the jet. And then the jet, too. It's like, yeah. God, you guys tied in. And then Hangman saves them. <sighs> Sorry, I threw yeah. my pen down. It's so good. All the elements. To use things that would normally hurt as a weapon, as a, as a, as a, as a healer, helper, as a, a thing to enhance. Maverick is now, you know, Tom Cruise is, is 60 now. Mm-hmm. You know, he's not 22 anymore. Mm-hmm. You know, like 35 years have gone by. Yeah. How do we use that as as an advantage? Tom Cruise argues that the story really couldn't happen until now. You know, it took that to make it. Makes sense. The sequel. So, Tom Cruise. Can't not talk about him a little. I am continually blown away by the man. I don't know, his, his political or religious beliefs, if I ever hung out with him, I don't know. You know, who knows? But... He, in a way, is the maverick of movie making. Yeah, at this point, that's pretty clear. Doesn't it? Doesn't it just feel like he was playing himself? Yeah. You have a guy who's now not young anymore. Sure, it's probably had a little bit of Botox. Probably eats a lot of vegetables. He's in. <laughs> looks great. He looks unbelievable. Yeah. He looks ridiculously unbelievable. He's in shape, and he's still kind of one of the most powerful, if not the most powerhouse, maybe The Rock now. Like powerhouse, like physical action stars. Mm-hmm. We're kind of we're in an era where we don't really have many anymore. No, you know the seventies we had Charles Bronson. You know we had I mean, sure like Daniel Craig with Bond maybe would be the, you know, just because the Bond character is so enduring. Mm-hmm. But a character who is aging yet still in this kind of young man's game. There's a way to do it. The character in the movie grows up in real life too. Yeah. So really? let's just converge on that fact and not try to to cheat it like why are we trying to uh make these older uh classic icons be the younger people they are it's like no they're in a different age bracket now let's utilize what that means Hmm. um the the teacher the mentor right uh those life experiences that lead you to this uh point of, of wisdom it's like we mm. gotta listen to the old guys cause they've done it all before anyway they got, they got to that point because they did it yeah um so I, I think like the story was perfectly serving uh that 
And that's the only way to do it. If you go chasing, you're going to fall on your face. Yeah. But how do you bring the spirit and the power of what worked in one mm-hmm. back 35 years later? Mm-hmm. And I, I, I just loved what they did to... They were like, we're not going to do it unless we're going to do it right. Um, and they waited to, you know... You hear about the technology finally catching up to be able to do it. Like, you know, directors like Cameron, for example, with Avatar, he's like, I, you know, we wrote this thing forever ago, but there was just no way we could do it. Mm-hmm. But if the story is good, it validates it all. But what they did with these IMAX cameras in these planes is insane. Even yeah. watching it non-IMAX, you just feel like you're in there with them. And so I, I worked on Star Trek Into Darkness. It's been 10 years now. I got to do some background, which, you know, I'm still a bucket list. <laughs> cool, I still dude. think about it almost every day. I got to dress up in Starfleet for my living. Dude, amazing. Week. Yeah, it was, it was such, a, such an experience. We had IMAX cameras on there. These things are massive. They're uh-huh. huge. Uh-huh. They're loud. Uh-huh. How? 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 So they, oh, how did they fit these big-ass cameras into the cockpit? Yeah, so apparently it's the body and the... Um, it's it's all the receivers and stuff that are the that takes up all the room, all the housing and everything. Right. So they put that all underneath the plane, and they literally were like, "All right, Navy, what don't you need in these planes? Is there any?" Uh... They engineered. Yeah, it. yeah. They. Uh, it sounds like it was just a lens and a sensor, and then that sensor is sending a signal to all the rest of the computing components and the recording of the data and everything is like hidden somewhere else. Like, yeah, that's probably all custom made. Yeah, for sure. And apparently, the the wires that you see in the cockpits that are running to the front and back of the the cockpits, which just looks like wires that would be in a cockpit. I mean, what do we know? <laughs> apparently, that was that was the actual what you were just saying. That's that was all the wires that were going. Oh, to the, right. The data collector. So, yeah, they 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 took great lengths um, to do it right and to do it safely. And then, obviously, they weren't really piloting the planes; they had real pilots. Uh, the plane at the end is is Tom Cruise's plane. What? Uh, yeah, that was his personal own plane, and it was actually um. There's a really funny video I just saw with James Corden from Late Night, where uh, so he picks cool. up James Corden at like 5 a.m. on his own plane, and it's the <laughs> same plane. If you see Maverick, you're like, oh yeah, that's the plane at the end that him and Jennifer Connelly fly around. Yeah. In. Um, but yeah, so beautiful plane. Uh, I got to see interviews with uh some of the actors uh that played um the new crew, um including Miles Teller, and they went through rigors riggers first they had like a wooden cockpit that, that was like on a gurney that they're mm-hmm. not gurney gim, was a gimbal where they, you, know, you shake them yeah yeah and then you actually go up they had to do these trainings where they were like underwater for a while and like you apparently you go underwater then they like cover your face with like a, so you that see, sounds they flip you upside down oh man yeah miles taller that's that scary that one of the hardest things you've ever done for sure. Yeah. Being in darkness, you can't see, you're upside down, being submerged inside of a capsule, then you have to swim your way out of it, and you're upside down when you start it, yeah. or something like that, like they flip it yeah, over. Yeah, they, they put you in right side up, and then they flip you upside down, yep. and then you quickly don't know what the hell's going on, and, um, that and is underwater. That's scary. Yeah. But they had, they're like, we had to, before they let us up there, in the state-of-the-art jets, which are the F-18s now, mm-hmm. um, so... You can't just you can't just you know show up day one hungover from whatever you had the before <laughs> and stick you in one of these things and throw you up there. It's, it's from the hard deck. Yeah, from yeah. the hard deck. Yeah, exactly. 
So, I mean, just the lengths that they did to, to really do it right. And it, 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 like you said, it's not, it's not watching a cartoon, you know? You can feel mm-hmm. it. Yeah, you, you feel just, it. This feels... You can see their faces being... You can feel the faces. Pulling yeah. their Gs, you know? They're, they're just like, oh! Yeah. And they're actually fainting. I, yeah. I mean, the, yeah, the other thing, too, is they have to train so, that the, so they don't pass out under the G-forces. There's, yeah. uh, there's a suit that they wear that stops the blood from going too far down into your oh. extremities and it keeps the blood keeps flow the blood up where it needs to be <laughs> yeah up in your head you know and in your yeah. in your organs um and they have to do all these exercises and these breathing techniques and everything and and they do it a lot in the movie uh where they're talking about uh um regaining control right so they they feel like they're losing consciousness and once they're aware that they're in it, it's kind of like being in a dream or like something. We're like, shit, you know, like I know I'm here, but I just yeah. can't enter reality again, you know, right, and you right, have to right. fucking wake yourself up. Yeah. For real. Yeah. No, and, and, and like in the movie where they're, they're practicing the drop down and then they, they, you know, they're mimicking the physicality of the final mission, what it's going to take. They have to drop, shoot, then they got to pull up. And basically do like a death-defying, yeah. you know, pull up on the nose. And then, you know, you had one of the characters uh, who actually fainted. And <laughs> I liked how they uh, they used the tone. They called it, we got to hit him with the tone. Mm-hmm. And so they hit him with the tone and it gets in his ears and the ring, like you said, like you're in a dream. Yeah. Wakes him up and gets him out in time. That was a really horrifying moment in the movie. Man. And they were like, they're not even doing it yet. They're just practicing to do it. Yeah. <laughs> like, Jesus. God, that was such a good part, though, when, uh, when all the students could just... They couldn't wrap their head around all the limitations. Well, I mean, yeah, they were trying to beat all these limitations. You know, there was all these obstacles going on at the same time. It was the altitude. It was the turning through the canyons. It was getting up, uh, battling the G-forces as they go up this mountain. And then they do a whole uh, turn. They go inverted. Inverted. And then they hit a target. And um, they just, it's, it's more than any of them have ever put together in a, in a full equation you know right. it's, a, it's a long equation of all these variables yeah and then maverick comes in and shows them right when they're about to bail you know like yeah, or yeah. well how, how did it go when it was like they almost they, they basically were like we can't do this mission we keep practicing we keep failing and then tom cruise just jumps in the in the plane is like pull it. the whole fucking thing off yeah he does it's it. amazing like, yeah maverick well, Cyclone's like, well, you've shown them that uh, it can't be done. Um, now we have to show them that it can be. And he's like, all right, well, yeah. Um, and he does it, and you're like, yeah. Uh, just send Maverick. We don't need the new team. <laughs> um, <laughs> he, they're just getting in the way. But, you know, it, it, like you said, all the things that had to come together. Um, mm-hmm. It was like a ballet or something, you know. It was mm-hmm. like a dance that they had to all do. And then they had to dogfight. That was, they, they would have to get out of radar you know, where they have to pull up enough and then they would immediately be pounced on by enemy fighters. And then it became a war movie. Yeah. Um, but the brilliance of having Maverick go down mm-hmm. and Rooster going back for him. <laughs> I mean, I'm still just like... It's the best ending. It's dude. so good. So satisfying. It's and so then satisfying. they find an F-14. Yeah. Right, right. <laughs> You're like, oh, the, the crappy plane for... How are they going to get out of here? <laughs> yeah, it's yeah. like, oh my God, you got to be kidding me. Yeah, yeah. And then they keep calling it like a museum piece. And, or Miles Teller calls it a, a relic, a museum piece. It's almost an allegory for Maverick himself. An old 
guy, but that's what we need to get through it. You know? It's not the plane, it's the pilot. It's the pilot! <laughs> yes, dude. <laughs> oh my god, man. Yeah, so, I mean, Tom Cruise has just been pushing the envelope. You know, uh, Mission Impossible 5 Rogue Nation in 2015, he's hanging off the side of a plane. That's when people were like, oh man, is he super dedicated to his craft? Is he crazy? It's impressive. Yeah. Say what you will about the man. Holy crap. Yeah. Uh, in American Made, he uh, is a helicopter sequence, um, all piloted by him. For real. And then, this feels like the culmination of everything he's ever done. Mm-hmm. You know, to bring mm-hmm. back an old franchise. They actually signed a, uh, a pretty impressive deal where it was to be in theaters for a few months. We're, we're, we're in the age of streaming now, where it's since at least the pandemic, um, you know, movies coming out streaming simultaneously, you know, when the theaters were in their disarray. So this is really, it feels like the perfect time to return to theaters. It's good to see the, it's good to see theaters putting up numbers yep. that we weren't seeing since before the pandemic. I was kind of worried there. I know streaming's the future. I have a 180-inch wall screen here, so I'm not really suffering. <laughs> but the feeling of going to the movies, mm-hmm. and it's real, and it's in your face, and it's powerful. I'm glad everything happened the way it did. It's, yeah. it's, it's actually kind of magical how it got pushed and pushed. Mm-hmm. Imagine, imagine. I know. Imagine there. Imagine making this movie and being like, <laughs> what? There's a pandemic? <laughs> what? What's going on? No. This has got to be seen the way it's got to be seen. And to have the guts... To push it that long, they believed in it. They believed in it. It was they worth knew. it. Yeah, it's it's the cinematic experience. Um, streaming is great, but the art form uh, of cinema in the theater, experienced, you know, in a in a room full of strangers and friends alike. Um, yeah, that's the tradition. You know, that's it's crazy. I, I love it. Unbelievable. Uh, respect to them. <laughs> the whole process and then waiting you know 30 some years to even begin the conversation yeah it's, it's wild and then losing Tony Scott which he was picked to direct it beautiful in memorial love at the end mm-hmm. I turned mm-hmm. up there um, I hope I know in my gut that his spirit's in this piece and he's in there for sure and uh, anyway passing the baton I'd like to close with the story um, <laughs> for our listeners about you Oh, shit. <laughs> so we saw the movie. Uh, we went, uh, like I said, this is my second time seeing it, your first time. We went with uh, Ryan Grassmeyer, Chase Offerly, and me and you. And uh, we decided to go to a Regal because uh, Grassmeyer had just been in a commercial. And he's like, oh, they're playing my commercial at Regal Cinema. Yeah. And I, gotta, we got, I was like, oh, yeah, we got to go. And so I went and saw it at the Grove for the first time. Um, you're, you're outside of town in Sunland, but... We're all kind of here in Hollywood. So we were like, oh, let's go check out this Regal. Um, and you decided to, in very Top Gun fashion, ride your motorcycle <laughs> to the movie. And we get there nice and early because we want to see uh, Grassmeyer's um, commercial, which was amazing to see. And we had a great reaction where, uh, you know, he stood up and was like, that's me. And I was like, I know him. Yeah. And then the crowd was like, yeah. <laughs> but... You lost your wallet on the way to the theater, Ariane. You remember that? Yep, yep. You lost your uh, you lost your wallet on the on ramp to the highway to the danger zone. Actually, the, okay, so I was on the highway. Uh, to, I was taking to the five to the one seventy, and um, or I was supposed to be on the one seventy to get to you guys, and I 
I was on the five, and you can't, you know, pull your phone out while you're riding a bike on the highway. Yeah. So yeah. I figured, I'm like, I think I screwed up somewhere. Let me get off. And I pulled over on the side of the freeway, pulled my phone out, looked at the directions. All right, let's get back on track. Boom, get back on the highway. Um, and I had to check the directions one more time once I got off the highway. And I was on the side of the street. And it must have just, it did. It fell out it as out. I was pulling my phone to look at the directions. While it falls right on the street, I get back on the bike, go to the theater. And right as I sit down, <laughs> I notice it's gone. We're looking around, you know, in the yeah, seat like, and stuff. I'm like, oh, shit, seat. dude. Yeah. I even rode my bike and, and missed his commercial because uh, I, I stopped, uh, you know, I went and search for it in the parking lot where my bike was and i said all right whatever you know i guess it's gone and saw the movie and then after the movie it inspired me to be a maverick and just like what would maverick do i think he would find it i was like let's do this man so <laughs> rode to the last spot where i knew i had uh pulled my phone out and it wasn't there and then i hit the next spot that i pulled my phone out and i as i was coming up to it there was these two cones right and it, it was on the side of the street, these cones. And then right between the two cones was my wallet just sitting there on the asphalt. I just make a U-turn, pull up. And I'm like, I can't believe it. It's right there. Yeah, it was like hours later. Yeah. <laughs> Unbelievable. No, honestly. And then we were like, yeah, Top Gun. Man. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, honestly, I, um, not, that I, not that I wasn't a believer, but I, I was like, that's so cool we found it. And I got to say, I know you were probably freaking out to a degree. But your aplomb and coolness to be able to say, okay, well, I'm going to watch this movie and I'm going to enjoy the movie. And to let go for a minute. Mm -hmm. You got to let go. <laughs> yeah. By letting go of that wallet, you found your wallet. Yep. <laughs> um, not to say you didn't try to find it later, but I remember looking over at you at one point during the movie and you just had a shitty grin on your face and you were looking up. And this is, this is one thing about seeing a movie again. You can kind of, you know, I yep. do think like, all right. I, got, I mean, I was glued to it again, don't get me wrong. But I was kind of looking around and being like, how, how is Grassmeyer reacting to it? I had him on my left, I had Chase on my right, and then you were two seats over. And I was just to enjoy you guys enjoying it. <laughs> and then I thought, man, if I were Ariane and my wallet was out there in the fucking ether somewhere, I wouldn't be able, I'd be like, I gotta go find it right now. <laughs> I wouldn't be like, all right, let's watch a two and plus hour movie, you know, call it two and a half hours with trailers, you know, and, and then be like, all right, I'll go look for it later. <laughs> so power to you, man. I you're so chill under under the pressure, man. You could be a naval uh, aviator. Shit, man. <laughs> <laughs> well, I was influenced by the movie. I felt like that gave yeah. me a good exp inspiration. Like if these guys are flying uh, through space faster than the speed of sound in, in an F-18, I think I could probably manage staying cool for for a minute. Yeah. And then finding the wallet, and it was right there, man sitting on the asphalt untouched waiting to be picked up man <laughs> yeah you're just keeping it there for later that's all yep <laughs> <laughs> but anyway what a cool story to kind of epitomize uh, an amazing day with some friends and uh it was beautiful man it was a beautiful day yeah it was great man yeah well mr Ariane, i'm sure there's a million things we didn't get to with maverick and top gun one but guys this is an important movie go see it definitely cinema is as alive as ever it's yep. magic man it's it's power it's it's it's, it's a beautiful piece 
All right, Ariane, thank you so much, man, for your time. And uh, Thank you, man. Seriously, yeah. had a great time. Thank you for having me. Danger Zone! Danger Zone! <laughs>